We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. I'm going to have to uh, stretch my ability far past the uh, normal uh, vocal cord strength that I possess. So uh, we're praying for a little bit of a miracle for you guys in the back. Feel free to uh, scoot a little bit forward if you need to to hear me better, but uh, I'll do my best to try to get back there to you. Uh, Pastor Sam invited you guys to sit down, but by no means will it be offensive to me if at any point you find yourself needing to jump up and do a few jumping jacks just to stay, uh, keep the feeling in your fingers and toes and things like that. Uh, by all means, feel welcome to do that. So, uh, All joking aside, uh, for those of you who uh, haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And uh, let me just commend you for joining us today uh, on this very brisk, cold fall morning. Uh, it's an honor to have you. Uh, we are, are so thrilled to have you join us today. Uh, if you'd like more information about us, uh, I'll be standing over here after church. We'll have people as well. You're welcome to come and speak with, but uh, if you'd rather do things contactless uh, with COVID as it is and such, uh, uh, we have a number for you to text. So I'm going to read that out real quickly. Uh, if you want to pull your phones out or a pen and paper, if you're old school like me and you want to write that down, uh, that will be the number is 816-448-8178. So that's text the word welcome to 816 448 8178. Uh, in way of announcements for us this morning, uh, the an announcement that looms largest and probably for many of us uh, most excitingly is uh, the fact that we will be moving back November 1st to our location in the Screenland Theater on Armour Road in North Kansas City. We're going to be officially back in capacity there and uh, we're just thrilled to be uh, moving back into some semblance of normalcy. And uh, I just want to take a moment to commend you all, especially members at Emmaus, uh, just due to the nature of COVID and the things that have come over this last year. Uh, you're always wrong with every decision you make. Uh, and yet you guys have been so gracious and uh, just being uh, humble in just following and, and helping and serving. And even in decisions where you uh, maybe felt like we should have gone a different way, just continuing to serve and, and join us and gather. And uh, that says a lot about you and uh, your pastors love you. And uh, we just appreciate and care for you so much. So, so November 1st, we'll be back in action at the Screenland. And uh, we praise God for that. We're so excited. Well, we have the weighty task today of opening up the Word of God. And uh, so I would love to open us up in prayer before we do this. So if you'll bow with me, we'll go before the Lord and then uh, we'll open up the Word today. Heavenly Father, we lift high your name this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we come before you, the only mediator between God and man. Lord, we, we pray that in everything we do this morning, from the songs that we've sung thus far to your word preached this morning, uh, that your name would be lifted high, Lord, that the name of Jesus Christ would resonate within the hearts of the men and women in this field and that uh, to our brothers and sisters and those who are listening at home, we pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up, Lord, that our esteem of Him would, would rise. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would be with us as we look at one of these passages in Scripture that carries with it a hard truth today. We pray that Your Spirit would cause us to look inwardly, and Lord, that 
we would soften our own hearts and see you as good and just and righteous and holy. And Lord, that our hearts would be inclined to love you more and to hate our sin more as we are confronted by the truth of who you are. Lord, be with us as the, a litany of distractions serve to stand before us this morning from uh, chilly fingers and toes to uh, the cares and struggles of the world around us. I pray that you would allow our ears and our eyes and our hearts to be open to your word that we might be edified uh, and drawn near to you for your service, Lord. Uh, it's in your name I pray. Give me your words uh, with boldness and confidence this morning and may your name be lifted up. Amen. So the question that looms over our passage today is a weighty one. The question that is likely one of the most common confronting the church in our culture today. For those of us who have been following the Lord for some time, or maybe just following cultural trends and patterns, likely you've noticed a stark shift over the last decade or so. For a time, if someone was to... Uh, come in contact with a Christian and a spiritual conversation began to come up, oftentimes many of the uh, concerns or issues that were described or uh, confronted in that conversation would be related to things like philosophy and academia. Questions like, how do we reconcile miracles when we don't see them in modern context? Are we to believe that this is true? Shouldn't we just trust science and, and listen to what it says? Are questions related to the authorship of Scripture? Are we to believe that men wrote this down inspired by God and it was God's words inspired through these men? Or are we to assume that these are just men who compiled this book together to, to create a religion for themselves? However, likely you've noticed if you were to go out and have a spiritual conversation today, you'd probably spend less time parsing through uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You'd probably spend less time answering questions like the historical authenticity of the Exodus and you'd probably spend much more time answering charges against the character of God. God's morality. For many, the objection against Christianity in our neo-pagan postmodern culture is no longer an academic offense, but isn't a personal offense. And if I could comfort us this morning, I would charge you to say, although it feels like a stark shift in our culture, that this has always been the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The offense of the gospel has always been beyond a mere intellectual assent to a group of facts, and it has always challenged us at our very core that we ourselves are in stark rebellion against the creator of the universe, the God who has shown us what is good. We have rebelled against his perfect way. And friends, this is the question that looms over our passage today as we are opening up and continuing our series through the book of Romans. In Romans 3, verses 1 through 20, we see Paul answering this question and this objection. Is God just in His judgment of sin? This question is a weighty one when we consider where we've come from thus far in our travel through the book of Romans. If we look back even briefly through chapters 1 through 2, we see that Paul has not minced words when it comes to the nature of the human condition. We find a people and a group who have utterly rebelled against God's creative order. The holy God of the universe, the one who has created all these things, has set it in such a way that is to point to His good and perfect design. 
And we as a sinful people have chosen to do the exact opposite of that. We are a people who call what God has called good evil, and we are a people who calls what God has called evil good. And so we give approval to this, thus saying so much that Paul himself says that nature itself will rise up against us at the throne of judgment and stand as a witness to testify against our idolatry. Likely for the Jewish audience listening to this uh, exposition from Paul, up until that point we probably would have given a tacit and, and uh, glorious charge of amen. However, last week as Pastor Josh opened up the word for us, we saw that Paul took this argument to another level and specifically pointing to the Jewish constituent, pointing them to the reality that their ethnicity, the law that had been given to them, even their circumcision were of no value in saving them from their sin. And friends, this is a bleak picture that's been painted before us so far in Romans 1 and 2. And rightly, Paul at this moment chooses to add in an objection. So Paul, who has traveled all over the known world at this point, he has made his way to port towns and major cities. As we see in the book of Acts, his practice has been to go to these places and find the nearest synagogue and begin to preach the gospel. And there, oftentimes, we find him to come up with some very harsh pushback. And in the midst of this process, likely Paul has heard every objection possible. Maybe Paul's tapping into some of these objections that he's seen thus far. And so we see Paul addresses this question. And it's a big one. In light of the entire Old Testament, the promises that God has made to the Jewish people, promises to Abraham to bless and make his people as numerous as the stars, that these people, through his offspring, that the entire world would be blessed. Are these promises now negated? Is God being charged by Paul of being unfaithful to his covenant? And injustice and the punishment of sin? Emphatically, we see the answer to this question in our passage today is no. God is not unjust in his punishment of sin. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today as we make our way through this passage. If you want to be turning there to look, Romans 3, verses 1 through 20, we're going to notice this in two major movements. First, in verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that God remains faithful to His promises, both in His saving of sinners, but also in His punishment of sin. So God remains just and faithful to His promises, both in saving and in punishing sin. And secondly, we're going to notice Paul's indictment that all stand guilty before the Lord because of their sin, and there is no defense to be made on their behalf in their own works. So kids, if you're joining us today, so glad to have you guys out here. See you guys are nice and bundled up and warm. Uh, thanks for coming out and listening today. So if I was going to give you a big idea, if your parents were to ask you today after church what it was that we talked about, what our sermon was about, here's what you can tell them. You can tell them this, that God always does the right thing in punishing sin. Or you can shorten it even further than that. God always does what's right. We can trust God to do this. 
So some of you, maybe you're in school right now and uh, maybe you're sitting at a table with a group of kids and they all started talking and, and being disobedient and you were doing the right thing, but the teacher came over and you got in trouble with them. Maybe you were unjustly punished, even though it was someone else who was doing something wrongly. But kids, the glorious truth about God is He never does this. God never punishes us unjustly, but God always does what's right, and we can trust Him in that. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. We'll begin addressing this weighty question as we turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. We're going to read that together. And it says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So again, Paul's addressing this imaginary objector. He's going to be using this method throughout many of the subsequent chapters. And uh, this chapter is going to serve as kind of a springboard into many of Paul's arguments. So many of the arguments brought up today, Paul is going to be addressing in greater detail in weeks to come. So... Uh, so encourage you guys to continue coming out and joining us as you'll get to hear some of these things unpacked more in-depthly. But a good question is asked by the Jews in this case. Just as an aside, oftentimes we like to set up straw men that we can uh, kind of easily defeat in the court of argument. Paul actually sets up pretty good uh, objectors in his argument. So we see this question asked, and it's a good one. What's the point of being a Jew? All of these promises from the Old Testament the law, circumcision, all of these things, what benefit is it to us? And uh, perhaps shockingly, given everything Paul has said thus far, Paul answers in a very positive way. He says, much in every way. There are many advantages to being a Jew. And where Paul has probably more he could think of to unpack the primary and chief issue that he addresses in this passage today is he says that you have the scriptures. There's an immense advantage to being a Jew because you have the benefit of having the Word of God in your possession. And friends, this is no light thing to have the promises of God, to have the law of God so that we might know how to please Him, to have the prophets of God so we might know His plans in the world is of great value and of great benefit to the Jew. The Israelites had the great power and responsibility of having the law show them these things. They knew what God required of them to please Him. They knew of God's plan of salvation. And they were perfectly positioned to recognize who Jesus was when He came to the earth. The law and the scriptures testified to this. You can imagine for a Jewish person when Jesus came on the scene how utterly unique and amazing He would have been to them. Many of these people heard stories of men like Elijah who raised children from the dead, who took the oil jug, the almost empty oil jug of a widow in Zarephath and just a little ephah of flour remaining and continued to feed the entire family on this jug for years to come in the midst of a famine. These prophets of old that were meant to point towards the greater and true Messiah and Jesus comes on the scene and he does all of these things greater than Elijah greater than Elisha, greater than Moses himself. So the Jews had this advantage. They should have recognized Jesus immediately. A few weeks ago, Pastor Josh was preaching through our Declare and Display series, and he reminded us of uh, the passage in Luke 24 where there are gentlemen walking on the road to Emmaus. 
And after having become, uh, having risen from the dead, Jesus meets them on the road and begins walking with them. And they begin to express their concerns and their doubts. They had had high hopes that Jesus might be the Messiah, and yet now they're unsure because of the events that transpired. And what does Jesus do? Using the Old Testament, he walks them through his life and points in each way how he himself has fulfilled these promises of the Old Testament. So friends, this is a great benefit that the Jews have had. They should have been the first to line up when Jesus came on the scene and declare him as Lord. So we recognize this. And kids, as an aside, really to all of us here today, especially to the children here today, I want to speak of what an advantage you have in the world today. You know, right now there are people who have never even heard the gospel proclaimed. They've never heard the name of Jesus mentioned, and yet you right now are sitting here with your parents. They could have stayed home in their warm beds and put on a hot cup of tea and uh, watched their favorite show on Netflix with you, and yet they've chosen to come out into these conditions and, and to have you hear the Word of God preached. In your homes, they have taught you the scriptures and they have pointed you to who Jesus Christ is. And I want to just encourage you what a blessing this is from God on your behalf that you were born into the family you were born into, that you have this opportunity to hear the scriptures and learn who Jesus is here this morning. So it's a great blessing to you. And I pray that you grow and grow in your appreciation of that and your thankfulness of Jesus and putting you in this position. So Paul addresses this. Moving on with his argument, he raises another objection. So there is some advantage to being a Jew. They have the scriptures. You have the promises of God laid before you. And let's look at verses 3 and 4. Another objection has risen. And it's this question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So we see the question continues to be raised here. Paul, sensing the objections of the Jewish audience, sensing the likely objections to this picture that he's painted, the reality that he's put before them of their utter brokenness and sinfulness and the inability of the law to save them, he asks the question, again, returning to these promises that God has given to them in the Old Testament to save his people, not just in an immediate sense from onward, outward attackers, but in an ultimate sense. Have these promises been nullified now? Are these problems worthless to the Jew because of the unfaithfulness of the Jew? Does God rely simply upon the actions of man to determine his response and actions? And the answer to this question is no. Certainly not. Paul says, let God be true, though every man a liar. For you see, our God is a God who is not attached to the fickle, changing heart and actions of human beings. His promises are not constituent upon the aptitude of an individual to jump through the hoops or to live in a certain way. But God himself is true to his word no matter what man may do. Even if every man were a liar, God himself would remain true. And what we see is every man is a liar and God himself remains true to this. And we're going to see in this letter these beautiful promises, the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ being unpacked in some of the most glorious texts in all of Scripture. Romans 5, 
Romans 8. Some of these passages many of you have clung to in some of your darkest moments, I would imagine. And it's been enraptured to the beauty of who Jesus Christ is and in hearing these things preached. And Paul is reminding the Israelite people that God remains true to these promises. And what we'll see in our weeks to come is that Paul will impact that for the Jews in the room, listening to this sermon, the promises of God still stand packed through the man Jesus Christ. He intends to keep good on his promises to save this people as well as the Gentiles. For Jesus is the seed that will crush the serpent that was promised to Eve. He is the offspring, singular, of Abraham that will bless the nations. And he is the true and better Adam. He is all these things. But before we get to these, Paul wants to stay zeroed in on the common at hand. The question at hand is, is God just in punishing sin? So let's read at the end of verse 4. Paul quotes from a very familiar psalm. Psalm 51. In fact, it's the one Pastor Sam just read during our confession time. Uh, probably a psalm many of us have heard before. In fact, it's the famous psalm that David wrote under the inspiration of the Lord after his sin with Bathsheba. So, likely many of us remember this story. For those of you who don't, David being a very pivotal person in the Old Testament Scripture, particularly in pointing to who Jesus is. And David in his life, had a moment where he committed adultery with a married woman while her husband was off at war, named Bathsheba. And upon doing so, she became with child. And seeking to cover this up, David called Uriah back from war, hoping that uh, he would be with his wife and that the whole thing would just go away. He could, could just kind of sweep it under the rug. What ended up happening, though, is Uriah refused to do that since his other men were at war. And so David in a moment of utter sinfulness, sent Uriah back to battle with a commission to have him murdered, sent to the front line so that he would be killed. So we see in the ugliness of this scene, David is confronted with this sin in this moment, and he writes Psalm 51. And I'm going to have us read that whole verse in context. So in Psalm 51, verse 4, it says this, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David's words are unmistakable here. We see David is crying out to the Lord because he recognizes something, that his sin is justly deserving of being punished, that God is justified to punish him in this moment. In this moment, in writing this psalm, David himself, being a Jew, is not crying out and saying, Lord, look at the law, how I followed it. Lord, I'm circumcised right now. But he recognizes that God is justified in punishing him for his sins. So he cries out and clings to the mercy of God in this moment, begging God to have mercy on him. And friends, this is something that we need to take with us, this posture I feel that it's very easy, particularly in our current cultural context that likes to brush aside sin and we give it terms and we give it identities that are no longer bad things. We say, well, that's just who you are. You're Enneagram 9, you can't help it. You're INFJ, that's just the way it's going to be. You're a Taurus, a Leo. And yet, friends, what we see 
is that that is an utter distinguishment of what God calls our sin. We don't have an excuse to wipe sin away. And when we begin to esteem sin as a little thing, when we begin to think things like, well, God is kind of harsh. Passages like this are harsh. Why would God act like this? I would beg you today, friend, to to reconsider and to ask the Lord to begin to soften your heart because if you come to passages like this and you begin to get the gut feeling of thinking that God is too harsh in His punishment of sin, the reality is, is that you have esteemed sin and subsequently the Lord too lightly yourself. You yourself are looking at your sin far less lightly than it needs to be taken. And so, friend, I say this lovingly, but you are not the one who gets to decide what is sin and what is right and what is wrong. God Himself has a perfect track record of doing this, and He will never fail to do so justly and righteously. When we enter into His presence, we don't assume the accusatory role role of asking God to reconsider based in light of these facts. For God knows all, and God will always render the correct verdict. So in addressing this, Paul comes to verses 5 and 6 and continues as these objections are leveled against the Lord and His justice. Let's read this. Verse number 5. If our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? So here we see this question being leveled. And it's a bit of a complicated question. Maybe even more so than what surface value would point us to. But in looking at our passage, Paul is asking the question, if the unrighteousness of the Jews is serving to magnify God's righteousness, are we to question God's motives or question God's righteousness in His decision to inflict wrath? See, the question that looms over these passages is clear. Is the Jewish failure to believe the gospel and to follow the righteous law of the Lord in any way calling into question God's righteousness? And friends, this is a big question that looms over many parts of Scripture. This, this idea of human will versus God's sovereignty. And this is a thing that's going to pop up in the book of Romans as we move forward. Uh, In the meantime, before we get there, you want a more substantial answer to this, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Sam's Habakkuk sermon. Excuse me, that's a hard word to say when your lips uh, quivering from cold, but uh, his Habakkuk sermon. And uh, within that passage, he does a good job of unpacking some of these implications. In our passage today, though, Paul chooses to focus rather on God's justice in punishing sin at large. And we see here the real charge is against the unrighteousness that God Himself has every right to condemn. The real question is this, would God be a righteous judge if He did not judge the sins of the Jew? Two weeks ago, we looked at how God is an impartial judge Perhaps for many of us, we have been turned off to the hypocrisy of impartiality. We see it all around us in our culture in so many variant forms where the rules appear to apply to one group but not to another group. 
where someone can say something and if they're on the right team, they get away with it. But if they say it over here, then they are justly condemned for saying that. We recognize the utter bankruptcy of this kind of ideology. And yet when it comes to God, what we see here in this passage is Paul asked the question, would God be just in judging the world if he did not also judge the sins of the Jews? And the question of this is plain. He would not be. God upholds his justice in judging the universe by judging all sin rightly, without partiality. For we see God is not like worldly judges. You can't stack the books to get a verdict you want from him. You can't slide a payment under the table to get him to lean in your favor. But God will always render the right verdict every single time. He is holy and just, and he will judge rightly the sins of the world. Rightly, he will condemn all sins as treacherous in the rebellion that they are. Finally, we see in verses 7 through 8, Paul concluding this first section in his defense of God's faithfulness. Let's read that together. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to, to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Here in this final section of our first section, we see that Paul addresses this charge that's been leveled against him, saying that this gospel that he's proclaiming is going to support licentiousness. It's going to cause people to say that it's actually a good thing to sin because God gets glory in his punishment of it, in his judgment of it. It's going to encourage those to walk in licentiousness, encourage others to walk in sin in order that God might receive glory. And Paul rightly says that this charge is rightly condemned justly. By no means is this the gospel that Paul has proclaimed. We see within this tension and issue, as we've discussed earlier, of human responsibility and God's sovereignty throughout history, we have seen God receives glory Oftentimes in his saving of his people, and oftentimes in saving his people, we see him punishing the sin of others. Whether it be Joseph's brothers selling him to slavery, whether it be the Pharaoh refusing to allow the Israelite people to leave the land of Egypt, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar throwing three young men into a fiery furnace for failing to bow down to his golden idols. In each of these moments, God was vastly glorified in saving his people. God's glory was put on display for the whole world to see as he saved his people from these circumstances. But nowhere in scripture does this let us off the hook to say that those who were responsible for the evil in these stories get a free pass for doing it. You don't get a free pass to sin. In fact, God will judge sin rightly. So friends, this is the defining portion of our first section that God is faithful and he is just in his punishment of sin. We see Paul returns back to his original argument in verse 9. Let's read that together. What then shall we say? Are we Jews better, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both the Jews and the Greeks, are under sin. So we see in our final section here, in, in spite of the concerns of the Jewish objector, 
in asking the question, does the Jew have any salvific advantage based on their ethnicity, based on their possession of the law, based on their circumcision? The answer to that is clear and plain. No. All men, all women are justly condemned for their own sin. There is no salvific advantage for any ethnicity or group of people because all are under the curse of sin. God's righteous standard is justly and fairly applied to all men and all women. And as such, Paul's charge has been leveled across the board. All have willingly rebelled against the Lord and His perfect standard, and thus they all stand condemned as a result of it. Paul enters into this final stretch of his argument by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So this same scripture that the Jews had been given, the same law that was given to them in prophets that they might know the character of God. And he reads from them the next eight verses. I want to look through those uh, kind of in each section. Let's start with uh, verses 10 through 12. It says this, As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It would take a very strong commitment to a, a certain uh, hermeneutical agenda for anyone to come away from that verse and uh, draw any conclusion that there is an exception within that. Paul, the prophet Isaiah, and subsequently the Lord goes out of his way to repeat over five times, no one, not one, not even one person. There's no one you can find that would classify under the category of righteous. For all people have turned away from the Lord and have walked away from his righteous standard in order to embrace the corruption of sinful wickedness. And friends, even to the strongest skeptic of Christianity, they would probably find very little argument against such an argument. When we turn on our televisions, when we read the news, if you were to pull open your phone and scroll through your social media, you could probably find many indictments against the sinful nature of humanity. And we see that this charge is not simply left as a kind of an ethereal overhead view, but we see Paul goes into greater depth with each of these. Notice first in that section 13, or verses 13 through 14, we see that one of the first clear and obvious marks of our sinful corruption, one of the most obvious signs of that is found in our speech. It says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So if you want to know that someone is depraved and wicked, listen to their words. The prophet, in quoting this, points to the fact that the mouth serves as a, almost an open grave. It's an invitation to look inside and see the deadness that's present there. Friends, so often we see that rather than using our words to lift high the name of the Lord and to bless His name and to build others up for His glory, we see words so often used to manipulate and to deceive. Words are used to tear down and to slander. Even sometimes the kindest of words offered can be laced with an agenda in order to provide some kind of self-promotion. Friends, the speech of a sinner is no light thing. 
It is comparative to the venom of a deadly serpent. The same bite of a serpent that leads to death is the venom that comes from the mouth of a wicked man. And I have to take a moment to provide caution and warning in an age where we have information available to us at every waking second in a nanosecond we can hear an opinion on every issue or topic of the day. I must warn you and caution you, church, to be discerning of the speech that you choose to digest. For the speech of the wicked is bitter. It sows discord and curses. If you constantly find yourself intaking in godless rhetoric filled with humanistic and pagan ideology, don't be surprised if you don't feel the effects of its poison. Certainly your feelings towards this aren't a litmus test. However, I think it's important to ask ourselves the question, do I love Jesus, the scriptures, and church more having listened to that podcast? Am I more hopeful about what the Lord is doing in the world today after having watched that YouTube video or read that article? And friends, if the answer to this question is no, then I can assure you the quest to be all-knowing and to be all-seeing and to have an opinion on every issue that is happening in the world today is far less noble than the quest towards godliness. I'm not advocating a lifestyle of burying your head in the sand and acting like sin doesn't have repercussions for those around us and seeking to see the gospel go forward to those people. But it's far better to be naive on issues that are happening around the world and hopeful in what the Lord is doing here in your life right now and active in proclaiming the gospel in His kingdom now than living as one who's being cursed and bittered by the realities we see around us. If you're consistently taking in cynical, nihilistic, and destructive ideology, don't be surprised if you don't feel it poisoning your soul. One last caveat I'll put on that is that tone is not always the primary indicator of this type of language. Sometimes bitter words can come in the soft whisper with the kind smile of a self-proclaimed friend. Whereas a stern word of truth from a loving brother or sister can sting when it challenges the sinfulness that we've embraced. So I beg you, church, guard your ears and do not settle for honey-drip poison of man-made words. So we see that this corruption of our heart leads to a corrupt speech. But the prophet doesn't stop there. We see also that this moves outwardly into our actions. Let's read that again in verse 15 through 17. says this, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we see not only does this sin reside within us, but it begins to manifest itself as we speak. We are given a, a view into the soul. We also see this is the case in our actions as well. Man is quick to shed blood. So often we see in God's grace, He has not allowed evil to go unchecked. And yet when man is left to his own devices, the amount of misery and ruin he leaves behind is palpable. We need not look far or long to see the depth and scope of this wickedness. The 20th century was supposed to be the golden age of humanity coming off of the enlightenment and within the 
18th century, the discoveries related to things like Darwinian evolution and political theories like Marxism were supposed to allow for this opportunity for man to unhitch from religion. We no longer are beholden to have to listen to the traditions of the church. And it was believed by many seculars that we were going to usher ourselves into a, a golden era of human flourishing, no longer attached to the standards of God. And yet the great irony of this reality is the 20th century found itself to be the bloodiest century in human history. More so than all centuries combined, men and women were killed at the hands of wars and dictators and governments. And friends, we see this has always been the case throughout history. Violent and sinful men have done, and women have done violent and sinful things. Everywhere from the battlefields of war to the very safe, comforting places of our living rooms, violence has come. We've seen that even those who are least among us, the most vulnerable among us, like our children, have been cast into the Nile by evil men like Pharaoh, killed at the hands of kings like, Pharaoh, or like Herod, and even picked apart in the wombs of their mothers amongst us this very day. Friends, we are a wicked people. Misery and ruin follow our footsteps. This is the legacy of humanity. Friends, it can be summarized in this way. We know no peace. These are a people who don't even know how to achieve peace. Peace is the cry of every era. Whether it be the demonstrations of the 60s, and prior to that, this charge for peace and love, and yet we know not how to achieve it. In fact, what we see is that man remains in their hostility towards God, and they continue to engage in hostility towards his creative order. All of this can be summed up in the reality of this. In verse 18, we do not fear the Lord. They know nothing of the fear of the Lord before their eyes. And friends, fundamentally at the heart of every man's greatest need and every sin's ultimate solution, this is the reality. There's a lack of fear of the Lord. This is why we are violent in our conduct, vile in our speech, and corrupt in our inmost being. There's no fear of God and therefore there is no peace with God. Friends, this is why we must, as the people of God, remain convictionally committed to preaching Christ crucified as of first importance. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The wisdom of God is expressed most pertinently, most potently in the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous one who laid himself down on our behalf. Finally, we notice the conclusion of Paul's grand indictment in verses 19 through 20. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the picture that's been painted before us in our first three chapters thus far of Romans is crystal clear. For the Gentile, their condemnation is self-evident. To the Jew, they stand justly condemned as well. For the law is of no benefit to them if it is not kept perfectly and wholly and fully. 
The law serves only to stand as a condemnation in front of them, as a, t- as a tutor and a mirror in their face to remind them of how fall, far short they have fallen of God's righteous standard. And friends, the same thing is true for us today. Today's passage begins with this indictment of God. Is God just and faithful in His administration of justice? And friends, if I can say this with no level of tongue-in-cheek or sarcasm, but we find what a silly question that really is in light of what we've seen. As human beings, we have concocted and lived in such vile wickedness. When we come before the courtroom of a holy and just God, we do not stand on our own moral authority to question His motives or to question His methods or to ask whether or not He has the right to judge. We are the ones who have transgressed against Him. He is the one who has made things perfectly and righteously and we are the ones who have rebelled. And so in God's courtroom, we see that there was no case to be made. No man will stand in front in any form of self-defense, yet the whole world will stand quietly, condemned justly before God. Can't help but imagine that many of us here today have a propensity to try to bring our own version of self-defense to the courtroom. As we looked last week, some version of circumcision or law adherence that we have clung to as our standard of righteousness that we intend to hold others to and that we see as justification for ourselves. Perhaps that's just a general lie sense of morality. The, old, the golden rule we see in Scripture, do unto others as you would have them do to you. We live by that. We try to hold ourselves to that standard. And yet what we see is there's no righteous standard that we have not ourselves fallen short of. Even our own self-imposed, man-made standards of righteousness, we fail to complete in totality. And so, friend, my job today is to warn you that none of these things that you think are going to bribe your acquittal before God will hold up in any measure before the throne of the Lord. No virtue that you have ascribed to yourself, no actions that you've done, are going to negate the fact that you are a lawbreaker and that you have transgressed the law of the Lord. I have a piece of news for you today that is very exciting and then also very terrifying. And that piece of news, first for the the exciting news. For the exciting news, it's this, that God will always do the right thing in judging sin. God will always give you a fair trial. That's the good news before us today that we can take hope in. God will always give you a fair trial. I also have a set of terrifying news before you today. God will always give you a fair trial. For you see, the good news is also the terrifying news for us today. Because God will always do the right thing, God will always be justified in punishing your sin. And for each of us today, we stand as sinners before a holy God. The word of the Lord is clear upon this. You will not bribe your way into His good favor. You cannot cover your rebellion of sin by stacking the books to try to gain an advantage. God is holy and just, and He will judge you based on His righteous standard alone.
So friends, next week we get the joy of beholding the passage where Paul reveals that the righteousness of God is no longer, it's not contingent upon our ability to keep the law, but it has been manifested apart from the law in the man Jesus Christ. And that's why we cling to him. That's why this group of people is out here gathered in a field today. We're here today to magnify the name of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his name to each other and throughout this city and throughout the world. And the reason for that is evident and plain because Christ himself is the only man who stands before God and is seen righteously. Jesus Christ, the God-man, was the only person to live life in full obedience to God the Father. Jesus Christ is the only person who is an exception to verses 10 through 18. No one's righteous. No one does right. Everyone is corrupt in their speech and violent in their conduct. That's true of all you, and that's true of me, but that's not true of Jesus Christ. He himself was perfect and worthy of full honor. And the glorious news of the gospel is that he, though him being perfect, he took upon himself the sins of his people going to the cross. He endured the wrath of God that he might purchase for us holiness and obedience. He might transfer his righteousness upon us and take our sinfulness upon himself so that when we stand before God, verses 10 through 18 of Romans 3 no longer apply to us. We're no longer seen as vile lawbreakers, but we're seen with the righteousness of the Holy Son, Jesus Christ. So that's why we preach Christ crucified as first importance today. And that's why we cry out to you today to not cling to any of your own self-made versions of righteousness, your own versions of virtue that you've concocted or that you've maybe been given by the culture, but that you would cling to Christ alone today and in Him find the salvation and holy standing before our righteous Father. And it's in light of these things that I want to offer up very quickly three pastoral charges to us all. And the first is this. Church and non-believer alike, I charge you today to see your sin as serious. Culture is not going to tell you to do that. You're going to hear adages like, the only mistake you can make is not being true to yourself. You're going to hear adages that will say, as long as you are who you are, authentically you, you've done nothing wrong. And yet, as we look at the scriptures today, you see how grossly that flies against what the Word of God says. The Word of the Lord today has reminded us that without the hand of the Lord, we would plunge headfirst into the most vile and wicked things that we could ever imagine without God's restraining influence, that this culture would be a knockdown dragout of violent speech and violent actions. And so I charge you to remember today when you're confronted with your sin, rather than being angry or rather than questioning the validity of it, that you would let that resonate with you, that it would fall upon you today afresh and new, and that you would cry out to God, the only one who can do anything about it. The second related charge I would give to this is to rejoice and fear that the Lord is just. So rejoice in that reality. The question of justice looms large in our midst today. The question of justice and righteousness. It's something we crave. 
even when we don't realize it. When we see something that is unjust, we're prone to cry out for the right thing to be done. It's a little bit of an embarrassing acknowledgement, but uh, being someone who's from Oklahoma, I couldn't help but spend a little bit of time uh, watching the show The Tiger King. Would, would not endorse it, by the way, and, uh, but uh, had to see how the people in my state were represented. And uh, one of the things that struck me as I was watching the first few episodes of that was the cry for justice I felt. Here we have this, this man who's very bizarre. He's nothing like me in terms of socioeconomics and, and lifestyle. Um, and yet I find myself crying out for this man's justice as he sits in prison and I believe that he was falsely accused. So the cry for justice manifests itself. Oftentimes it transists even our own categories that we already have in place. When we see injustice, we cry out and we want it to happen. Here's the problem though. For most of us, we believe that until justice comes to our doorstep. Until we realize that we're the ones who are deserving of divine justice to be done to us. And so friends, that's why I revel in the fact that Jesus Christ is the intersection of these two things. The gospel is not inconsistent in this reality that God is fully just. His standard is never diminished or lowered. He never looks at sin over here and says it's condemned and then looks at sin over here and says, oh, it's okay over here. I'll make the exception. God never behaves in this way. He's a perfect and just judge. When he sees sin here, it's justly condemned. When he sees sin here, it's justly condemned. And friends, that's the tragic news, the great news. And then the good news for us today is that we too, that God has not sacrificed his justice in his upholding of Jesus Christ. When we cling to Jesus Christ, we see that God's wrath and his justice are fully satisfied as sin is punished to the nth degree. Christ drank to the dregs the full cup of the wrath of God on your behalf. And so if you're here today, that's why I would cry out to you to lean in and cry out to Jesus Christ. Here we find the satisfaction of God's justice and God's mercy in full measure. God punishing sin as he has promised to do while also sparing sinners. Only in Jesus Christ has this been done. And so it's to him alone that we cling. Not to any man-made, self-made religion. Not to any self-made virtue but to Christ's righteousness alone. Let's pray. Father, we lift high your name and we thank you for the reality of the hard truths placed before us, Lord, the, the truth that we ourselves are cataclysmically lost. Lord, the fact that we are so far short of your righteous standard that there's nowhere to blame there's no finger to point or accusation to be made. There's no action of ours to bring up that say, maybe perhaps reconsider, but Lord, we recognize that we in our own sinfulness have fallen short of who you are, of your righteous standard. And Lord, today in light of that, we find ourselves humbled. Lord, I pray that that reality would only sink in all the more in giving us joyful love and adoration for Jesus Christ. Lord, your answer to sin and injustice was not to 
take it lightly in order that you might save some, not to show partiality in order that you might save some, but your answer to our sin was to do justice fully, to pay for that sin in your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a joy in Him this morning, that you would give us a love for Christ. If anyone is here today and they don't know Jesus, I pray that they would cry out to Him today. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified in us as we continue to walk and work and live. I pray that you would give us joy in you. Even now as we go forward and take communion, I pray that it would establish a pattern in us of proclaiming your gospel. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.